Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Before we get into the episode itself, in which we'll be talking about Paul Schrader's First Reformed, I wanted to direct people to some stuff they can see uh, at morethanonelesson.com. Granted, there's not much these days. Uh, The site is being propped up almost uh, single-handedly by um, Bob Connolly, who's been writing reviews when he can. And uh, those reviews include uh, The Suicide Squad, the uh, DC film, uh, a documentary about Val, uh, Val Kilmer simply called Val, the Nicolas Cage film Pig, and then uh, a lesser known film called Gunpowder Milkshake. So you can find all of those at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, and then there are a couple of reviews that I have written, but uh, they are available over at battleshippretension.com. Uh, I recently reviewed the film Ride the Eagle, which I thought was a, a pretty good movie. Not necessarily great, but uh, it certainly has its moments. Uh, and then the film Jolt, which I hated so much. Uh, it has been quite a while since I have disliked a film as much as I dislike Jolt. So uh, you might enjoy uh, my review. That's available at battleshippretension.com. Uh, as far as announcements, there is uh, uh, congratulations in order for uh, friend of the show Josh Long, uh, former uh, co-host of the show. Uh, not, okay, first officially, yes, uh, he recently became a father uh, again. Uh, he and his wife had twins a few years ago, uh, but now they have uh, another little boy named Max. And so congratulations to them. But actually, actually, that's not what I wanted to talk about. But I guess that's what I should talk about first. Uh, so Josh wrote a script called Some Other Woman that uh, I uh, read uh, a couple of years ago and talked with him about and thought it was extremely good. And uh, the film is cur- the, the script is currently in uh, production. Um, it is being directed by Joel David Moore, who you probably know more as an actor than as a director, but he's directed a couple other things. Um, and it stars Amanda Crew from Silicon Valley and Tom Felton, Draco Malfoy himself. So uh, that's very exciting, and I'm very happy for Josh. I know that he's been, you know, he, he's been working really hard on various projects for a long time. Some stuff comes to fruition, some stuff doesn't. Um, and one thing that I know about him is that he's an extremely hard worker. There's a lot of people in Hollywood who come here and if they're not getting paid immediately, uh, they just sort of wait to do 
what they want to do until they are. And you can't really operate like that. And so Josh, you know, even while doing, you know, assistant directing jobs, he was writing several scripts uh, on the side and then showing them to friends and showing them to consultants and so that the scripts could be as good as they could be. And so uh, I really appreciate uh, that level of commitment to his craft. And now it is uh, it looks like it's it's paying off. So uh, keep an eye out for uh, a movie called Some Other Woman, uh, direct by Joel David Moore. Uh, and congratulations again uh, to Josh. So, okay. Trying to think if there's any other uh, announcements. Uh, nothing I can think of. I am working on another documentary. I think I might have mentioned that already. Um, and it will be, hopefully, it's going, it's taking longer than I assumed, but I probably was wrong to assume that it would be done uh, when, it w- when I thought it would be done because... Uh, between the last documentary and this one, I became a father of twins myself. And uh, yeah, that turns out they, uh, you know, take up time. So uh, I'm working on it and hopefully it will be available by uh, by Halloween, uh, ideally like early October, maybe mid-October. But uh, but yeah, it's it's a documentary about horror. And so it seemed appropriate to put it out during the Halloween season. And as it becomes available, I'll make several more announcements about it. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, Okay, so today we are going to be talking about Paul Schrader's First Reformed, uh, starring Ethan Hawke. Uh, It was released in 2018, I believe. Um, I think it is in some circles considered a 2017 movie because I think it played uh, film festivals and stuff, but I I think officially it's a 2018 movie um, as far as uh, wide release. Um, I think I've probably talked about Paul Schrader a little bit on this podcast. He, and, and we've covered some of the movies that he's either written or directed. I, I really love Paul Schrader, even when he does things that I don't super respond to for the most part, I do. Uh, there's just his sensibilities as a writer and as a director very much fall in line with my interests. He tends to tell stories about men and kind of explore what it means to be a man as opposed to what culture says uh, it means to be a man. And he explores it in a way that is very emotionally attuned and very intellectually and philosophically attuned. Um and sometimes he does it with a tremendous, tremendous amount of melancholy, um, a fair amount of rage um, in some cases. So like if you look at stuff like Taxi Driver, which he wrote, um, and then movies like Affliction, which he wrote and directed, you see like the these ex- explorations of like male anger. Um, but underneath all of his movies, even something like Last Temptation of Christ, which he wrote, and again, he adapted from uh, from a book by uh, Nikos Kazantzakis, um, there's, there really is this feeling of his main character, again, usually a, a man, just feeling very lost, not really sure if they have any hope of happiness um, or if they're just going to be haunted by whatever demons have been plaguing them. Um, it could be choices they've made, or it could be something they've experienced. As I mentioned in the movie Affliction, you have a situation where Nick Nolte plays uh, a man who was raised in a, in a home with an abusive father and is terrified that he is going to become 
that man. Uh, but then in a movie like Light Sleeper starring Willem Dafoe, uh, you get uh, a character who is a drug dealer and he's a bit of a he's a bit of a scumbag, but he's also a little bit naive. There's I, I really like Light Sleeper as well. Um, but there you have a guy who is who has made a number of bad choices uh, and is starting to feel like maybe he uh, cannot escape the consequences of them. So one way or another, the idea of some uh, of, a, of the main characters past uh, pursuing them and haunting them, that's that's a common theme in his films. Uh, and it it is one of the aspects of First Reformed in which uh, Ethan Hawke plays the pastor, the reverend uh, of a an historically significant church. And the church itself only has a few attendees. Uh, really, it's more of a tourist destina- destination for people uh, that are interested in it. Uh, and it is owned uh, by a, a nearby megachurch, the pastor of which... Uh, is played by Cedric the Entertainer and uh, played very well, in my opinion. And so uh, Ethan Hawke's character is, he's very lonely. Um, he, he's divorced. His son went to fight uh, in Iraq and died. Um, and then he decided to go into, uh, you know, go into the, the ministry. And so when the film starts he has started writing this journal and you know the the narr- so you get this voiceover narration and it's it's reminiscent in some ways albeit you know written more articulately but it's reminiscent of Travis Bickle's journal from uh from Taxi Driver and so you get the inner thoughts of this man who does seem to be devout in his faith uh but has a great deal of of doubt about it, which is understandable. We all we all do. It's that there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and then he is approached by uh, a woman named Mary, who is uh, a member of his congregation, played by Amanda Seyfried. And she says, hey, my husband, Michael, uh, is experiencing some some tough uh, emotions. He's experiencing some depression. Um and in fact, Mary says, I am, I'm pregnant and uh, my husband is so preoccupied and so concerned with the state of the world, specifically environmentally, like the, the way that uh, the earth has been polluted and the effects of global warming and all that sort of thing. And he actually is so preoccupied by it that he doesn't like the idea of bringing a child into this world. And so she basically asks the Reverend, like, can you go talk to him? And so he does. And it's a, a wonderful scene between Ethan Hawke and uh, Philip Edinger, who plays the, the, the uh, angry and concerned young man. And the, the man's concerns about the environment seem to uh, affect Ethan Hawke in such a way that it starts to grow in his own mind and he starts to become really worried about the earth himself um, to such an extent that it it seems to conflict in a way with his faith um, 
it seems to become a little bit more important than his faith. And then as the as the the film goes on, he develops a romantic interest, and then suddenly that is where a lot of his passion goes. And and I, I won't. I mean, I'm sure that as always, if you're listening to this, I'm sure you've seen the film. And so, talking about it purely from a plot standpoint, I think is not uh, not really doing the film justice. It is a very internal film in which it is more about characters' reactions to the story and to each other than the story itself. It is a very patient film, I think. Uh, There are long stretches of silence. It really does take its cues from its main character, who for the most part lives a very quiet life, um, a very introspective life. And I, the film could be described as, as meditative, which makes sense because the character is perpetually meditating on his faith, on his loss, and on his own purpose. Because I think he uh, is getting to the point where he's wondering what good he's doing in this world. Which is why when he encounters uh, this young man who's so passionate about... Uh, the environment and, and about uh, you know negative effects of of uh, man's industries and and stuff like that. He encounters that and he sees that level of passion, and I think he starts to wonder what's wrong with me um, or what's wrong with my faith or whatever it is uh, because he hasn't felt passion like that in quite a while. Uh, and in actually in one of the the bits of narration after he's been talking with this young man and they get into a a very low level uh, sort of spiritual debate Uh, in the narration Ethan Hawke's character says that like he hasn't felt this excited in a long time Uh, and I think Christians can can relate to that especially if you've been Christian for a long time Uh, you just sort of take all of this as fact for so long that when you're challenged yes it can be a little bit scary but also it can be invigorating because suddenly you have to think about this stuff um, in a way that maybe you haven't before. And uh, it can get, you know, it can sort of get the the philosophical blood pumping again. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating character study of, of uh, Reverend Ernst Toller, uh, played by Ethan Hawke. Uh, the the other characters again great performances all around um but it really is his film and i should say for a long time i was not a fan of ethan hawk i always thought he was very mannered and always and felt a little bit self-conscious on screen and you know he came out of that 90s that 90s acting style where there's a sort of uh affectation uh to to his performances and it just always kind of bothered me maybe it was just the types of characters that he was playing and then you know as he gets older he's getting different types of of roles and is doing more with them uh, or just doing something different with them and uh yeah i mean his performance in first reformed is is absolutely marvelous because it is so small uh and so quiet but when the character is talking about feeling energized 
you know, you can't simply rely on the narrative as an actor. You can't simply rely on the narration to do that. You need to indicate it at least a little bit to the audience without over indicating. And I think he manages to do that. It really is a marvelous performance. Um, as for the, the film itself and the way that it's made, um, Paul Schrader does, he does what a lot of filmmakers have been doing lately. And I have a knee jerk negative reaction to it and I shouldn't, but I, but I often do. Um, you know, he did what Robert Eggers did with, uh, the lighthouse. Um, and now I say all these filmmakers have been doing it now. I can't think of any other examples, but those are the, the, that's the one off the top of my head in which, um, Schrader shoots the film. Oh, a ghost story is another one, uh, shoots the film in the, uh, sort of the more, the classical aspect ratio, which is much more square than rectangle. Um, and so when you see the movie in, in a theater, it's not using up uh, a lot of the screen. It's just sort of right there in the center. And that's it's jarring because people, uh, if you watch classic film, you're very accustomed to it. But uh, if a movie is made with a, in the modern time, usually it has a modern sensibility. And so if a director goes against that, uh, there there's usually a very specific reason for it. And I do think there's definitely a reason for it here, just as I think there was in the lighthouse. Uh, you know what? Zack Snyder did it with, um, with his, like the director's cut of justice league. And I don't think he uses it well. Um, I, I'm critical of Zack Snyder instinctively, but I also want to try and give him a chance because he, he does have a, a striking visual style, whether I like it or not. Um, and I think he doesn't understand how to use that aspect ratio. And so I think the shots are not actually, they're composed with widescreen in mind, but he still insists on this, uh, this old aspect ratio. And I think it actually detracts from, from the film because this is going to sound mean. It just, feels as though Zack Snyder's doing it because it feel it feels more serious like he wants people to take him seriously and he's like oh a lot of other directors are doing this I'll, I should do it too that's very mean of me to say he I'm sure he undoubtedly has his reasons uh, I suppose it does this aspect ratio gets people thinking in terms of vertical instead of horizontal and given what Justice League is and the way that he shoots it uh, he's sort of telling story telling a story of like these monumental figures you know who tower over us at least in our in our own mind uh so i guess that sorry i didn't mean to go down the uh, the road of justice league um here uh i think paul schrader da, creates a, a a visual style that that feels very confined which makes sense given how our main character experiences the world. He's basically just, I say, I would say stuck in the job. It's not that he's stuck in the job. He's just stuck in life and he just feels very, uh, enclosed. And so it just makes sense to, to have a visual signifier of that as opposed to a, a big, vast, widescreen, beautiful, uh, uh, visual palette. And so it's not merely that it's not merely the, the, the choice to, to do this uh, different aspect ratio, but it's also what Paul Schrader does with it. I think the composition is, is really marvelous. I think there's a tremendous amount of symmetry 
in the film, which does, which tends to suggest a, a main character who is very, who has a tremendous attention to detail and lives a very careful life um, and a very measured life. And I think uh, that's what we get from uh, Ethan Hawke's character. Uh, but over the course of the film, he becomes a, a lot more unstable. And, and I think it's because he, he is jumping from one cause to another. I, I don't mean to say cause in a, in a derisive way, but you know, he starts out like he has his faith and he's, and he, he's no longer passionate about that, but he can be passionate about it. But then he in, encounters like, uh, environmentalism and becomes very passionate about that. And then he, uh, meets this woman and he becomes very passionate about her. And so it's all of these things. And, you know, I, I don't, I feel like everything that I'm saying is, is not even scratching the surface. I think you could see first reformed and just get so many different things out of it. Um, and I'm sure Paul Schrader could listen to this and, and roll his eyes at me. Uh, that's one of the things that I like about him is that there's the story that he's telling and often it is done in a very straightforward way. There are some experimental aspects to the way he tells this story, but for the most part, he tells his stories in a, in a, in a deceptively straightforward way, but he's actually doing a lot more than you might think. Um, so if you haven't seen the film and I have tried to stay as spoiler free as I can, if you haven't seen the film, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It was one of my favorite movies. I think it was my second favorite film of 2018 behind annihilation. Uh, and it's just such a, you know, you, you, you watch this movie and you'll come away feeling the way Ethan Hawke's character does when, when having that conversation, uh, with this young man where you'll feel invigorated and, it's just exciting when a movie can do that, and First Reform does that. I, I'm sure a number of people would watch it and find it boring, but I think it could be argued it was never for them in the first place. Um, it is for people who take film very seriously as an art form and want to be challenged by it, and it will do that. Uh, artistically, philosophically, all of that. Um, and so one of the things that you know, I just mentioned that the the way that the character jumps from one thing to another to another um, and seems to be following essentially wherever his passion is going because he hasn't had he hasn't felt that passion in a while about life in general, but also about his faith. And so the idea of of having this this passion sparked in him, like he just goes and and follows that. And that really resonated with me. As a, as a person who I've, I've said it on this show before, my faith is, I would say, purely intellectual, even though I am an extremely emotional person. And that can be really tough for me because usually, like, if I, if I don't feel something, if I feel nothing towards something, it's like that thing doesn't exist. And so if it's something that is sort of nebulous and kind of ethereal like faith there are times when i wonder like do i even believe this stuff given how i don't really feel anything about it um and i know that that's objectively incorrect to rely so much on my own feelings but it's frustrating because you know i tend to rely on my feelings for the way you know when i approach film when i approach other people like really everything else um, it starts with my, my reaction starts with, uh, my emotions. Uh, and so the fact that my emotions are not, <laughs> are not really a, uh, 
a compass when it comes to my faith is something that kind of throws me a little bit. But I was also reminded of uh, an interview that I saw somewhat recently. I saw the interview recently, the interviews from the 90s, and it's with uh, George Carlin. He's being interviewed by Tom Snyder, who was a uh, interviewer and a late night host for a long time. And so I was going back and watching some old interviews with him. And he's a wonderful interviewer, and I highly recommend seeking out some of his stuff on YouTube. Um, he passed away over 10 years ago. Uh, but anyway, so he's talking with Carlin, and you know, Carlin was Carlin, who's a very famous atheist, but he grew up Catholic. And he tells this story about when he was a little kid and he was going to get he was going to take his first communion. And everybody, everybody around him said, when you take your first communion, you're, you're going to feel so different. Like this is such a big deal in a, in a young person's life that when you do it, you're going to feel very different. And then he did. And he didn't feel anything. Uh, and he didn't blame himself for that. And nor should he have. Uh, but he started to think like, well, if everybody's saying that I'll feel something when I do this and then I don't, then maybe this whole thing is just wrong. Uh, and undoubtedly, I don't I don't think he immediately became an atheist as a child at that moment. But it definitely, you know, laid the gra- laid the groundwork for him. And and it just got me thinking about um, our feelings and the way we the way we prioritize them and the way we prioritize our own understanding of things and the way we just prioritize ourselves. I think it's very, as someone who has two podcasts and used to have three before Jen and I both just got bored talking about survivor. Um, as someone who has two podcasts and is a college professor and makes, you know, documentaries that are more opinion based than anything else. Like, we are very, uh, you know, I'm, I'm condemning myself here, but like, we're all very positive that we have something to say, uh, and that our opinion is, is really worth something. Um, so much so that I think we, we can't help, but, uh, prioritize our own reaction to the Bible as opposed to the Bible itself. And so, often our faith and the Bible becomes this thing that we use on our way towards something else. Um, the Bible and our faith and God and all that, that's this thing that helps us feel good and gives us tools while we pursue a career that we're really passionate about or a relationship that we're really passionate about or a cause that we're really passionate about. It's, I feel like we, it's so easy for the Bible to be uh, a means to an end and often just one of many means to an end and not the end itself. Uh, And when we see like this character jump from one thing to another uh, and, and really just seems to be following his, his passion, uh, that's what it, that's what it reminded me of. Um, and similarly, the film that that uh, for the compa- our companion film is uh, Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu's Twenty One Grams, and in this you have uh, it's a, it's a really interesting film if you've uh, if you've seen it uh, or if you've seen any Iñárritu movies, especially in the in the uh, the twenty aughts. Um, 
the structure is is nonlinear, uh, and this is a smaller ensemble than Amoris Peros and Babel, but it does tell this you know sort of a disjointed story that all comes together uh, at the end. And one of the stories that it tells is of uh, a man named Jack, played by Benicio del Toro, who is like a an ex con who who embraces Christianity as, as a, as a lot of uh, ex cons do, he embraces it and he's really passionate about it. Um, but then he has an accident and it truly is an accident. Uh, he's not doing anything. He's, he's speeding, he's driving a, a big truck and he's speeding. So there is that. So he is doing something wrong. Um, but it's not like he's driving drunk or anything like that. But, uh, he winds up hitting uh, a man and his two children and killing all three of them. And so he, Benicio Del Toro, his character, like turns himself in and goes to jail for a short time um, and then gets out and is trying to make sense of all this from a spiritual standpoint. And he can't. He can't make sense of it. And so that throws him into a, a, a tailspin. And he essentially just like abandons his, his life when he does have a family because he just cannot make sense of all of this. Uh, and he turns to his, you know, his, his pastor, uh, who, who actually I do think is trying to engage with him. He's not just giving him platitudes. Um, but that's not enough for Jack. He, he, he needs more than, than the seemingly simple answers that, that his faith provides. And so granted, this is not a situation of a guy going from one thing to another, to another, to another, uh, quite the opposite. Like he embraces faith probably as a, again, as a means, this is, you see where I'm headed here. Um, as a means to kind of distance himself from a past that he's not, uh, that he's not proud of and that he's worried about, uh, and he does that, and the what it's the the fervor with which he he latches onto his faith is the kind of thing that when there's a desperation to it. And hey, a lot of us cling to our faith as a function of of desperation when we're feeling really low or whatever it is. That's fine, but I've seen I've seen that kind of passion before in people that I've known uh, who come to faith a little bit later in life, and it's usually in response to something. And you really do get the impression. And honestly, uh, these people that I've known, they don't stick with it that long, strictly speaking, maybe a few years. Uh, and then it's and then whatever it is they needed it for, they've achieved or they realize that it's not going to do for them exactly what they wanted it to do. And then they leave. Uh, and it's always sad when when I hear that. Um, but I also I think at the core of that is somebody who understandably so he's trying to get away from a bad past and then a horrible thing happens that would that is his fault really uh, and that is that that's a very hard thing to square that level of guilt uh, combined with this idea of hey I was trying to do all the right things and yet I still am responsible for the, the deaths of of several people. Uh, you know, that's, that's not an easy thing to live with. I haven't had to live with that. Uh, and most people haven't. And so, uh, I'm not judging the character of Jack, but I, I look at 
the Reverend from First Reformed, and I look at this character, both of whom seem to be pursuing things with a great deal of passion and, and frankly seem to be using faith without realizing it, using it to help them realize something that's actually bigger than the faith or at least outside of the faith. Uh, and then, as I mentioned with, with some of the people that I've known, when the faith is not doing for them what they wanted it to do, whether it's, you know, oh, this this is not providing me with the amount of, uh, of passion that I need it to, or this is not providing the answers that I need it that, that I needed it to, uh, the answers as I as I define them, uh, and then people move away from it. And and so at the core of all of that is this idea. And please don't think that I'm that I'm judging anybody because this is very much me as well. I'm somebody who struggles greatly with depression, um, and. I'm often frustrated, not necessarily to the point of doubt, but it's in there. Um, I do feel frustrated with my faith because there's so many things in life that, that don't make sense. But, at, but you know, when, whenever you say that, like, well, there's things that don't make sense, you, we're le- we leave off the last two words, which is they don't make sense to me. And I think that that's that's where we get in trouble and that's where a person can sort of ping pong around um because they are we are relying on our own understanding which uh biblically uh is it suggests that's not a great thing uh i i was uh, looking up uh, this uh, christian blogger who i he has some good. He has some good sentiments, and 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 one of them is this, where he says, uh, "Many modern believers have exchanged true faith for a pseudo faith, which resembles Christianity, but is actually a dangerous counterfeit. Instead of instead of trusting Jesus, they trust themselves. Instead of following the teachings of Jesus, they are attempting to create their own way. And I think that is true. I do think that that's that's uh, something that we're all prone to. Uh, I remember I was talking with somebody. Uh, about the nature of belief and uh, and we we're talking about relativism and and the idea of, of believing something is right uh, right as incorrect and I had said something probably a little bit smarmy but uh, I, I said something to the effect of like well yeah of course you the stuff that you believe whether you say it overtly or not you believe it because you think it's right if you didn't think it was right you wouldn't believe it you know and 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 at the core of that statement is just all about like our assessment of things and of course when we become christians or when we explore faith or whatever it is like it it does it essentially we sort of require it to prove itself to us uh and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't and you can't really help that and so i'm often fascinated by the the nature of belief uh sometimes it feels a little bit involuntary you know i can't always guarantee i can't always um control what hits my ear a certain way whether it be a piece of music or a piece of information um and so 
I don't know. It's 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 definitely something that is pretty deep from a psychological standpoint. Like, why do we believe the things that we believe, and then why do we not believe these other things? Why do we discount them? Um, but either way, that's a bit of a tangent. Uh, the idea of this thing being our faith, this thing is not doing what I want it to do. And talking about it as though it were a tool that we bought for a specific purpose and it's not serving that purpose. And in that we are essentially dismissing the idea that our faith is the purpose. Like that's, that's the end. And that's, and that's tough because it's such a, it's such an intangible thing. Um, especially in this life. I mean, we might believe in an afterlife, uh, but that's not a thing that we can, it's, it's a thing we can only conceptualize as opposed to the very real goals and very real, um, mistakes we've made or whatever it is like the stuff in this life is is very tangible very real and whether it be you know a a a job that you're pursuing or a relationship you're pursuing or whatever it is it's not at all uncommon to to like pray to god and ask for that thing uh or it could be healing or or all of these things which are not bad things at all Um, and then if we don't get that thing, then we actually wind up getting a little bit resentful of God. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of the, the book, the great divorce by CS Lewis, which is one of my favorite books. And in it, people actually, uh, get the opportunity to go to heaven. And it becomes very clear that those that actually do want to get into heaven, uh, many of them only want to get in there so that they can be uh, reconnected with a loved one that they lost or something like that. Again, but perfectly fine uh, desire, but that's the only reason that they want to get in there. Uh, Not to connect with God or not because the, the place itself is desirable, but only because of this thing that when faced with the, the, bigness of what heaven is their goal while understandable seems very small and very specific uh and the idea that by embracing god and by uh, uh, wanting to get into heaven this other this this loved one that they lost like they'll be there they'll you know that that it's not like it's one or the other like they're going to be there in the, in the case of this story but the person like that this their their loved one is the end all be all like the idea of this other person being thrown in it's like well no 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 that's not how this works i need them specifically um and so so i wanted to to talk a little bit about the things that we use faith for instead of what what we're supposed to be using it for which is to say not really using it but to get abstract i guess sort of allowing it to use us and sort of allowing it to dictate to us what we should do what we should feel how we should think and instead we too often just try to fit it in with our plans and then if it doesn't fit we just get angry at that thing and not at us certainly the the bible has a lot to say about 
where our heart is and what our goals are and the things that we prioritize. Uh, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is to not have any gods before God. And, you know, people refer to God as, as a jealous God. And we have a picture in our mind of the term jealous. Often we mix it up with the concept of envy, but when we think of like a jealous husband or something like that, we see it as possessive. We see it as controlling. Uh, when in actuality, jealous could mean like, I am committed to this person or this thing, whatever. I'm committed to this and and I, I genuinely have their best interest at heart, but they are distracted by this other thing that absolutely doesn't have their best interest at heart and I will do what I can to woo them back to me because I'm able to see what they are doing even if they can't see it and so when God says don't don't bow to idols don't go don't have any other gods before me uh, it really is this idea that like these other things even if they are well-meaning, like if you make them the ultimate thing, they will only break your heart because they're, they, they are temporary. They are transient. And, and so when we commit ourselves to these things, again, many of them good things, um, you know, going back to first reformed environmentalism is a perfectly good thing. You know, we want to, we want to be good stewards of this world that God has given us. Um, seeking out ro romantic, uh, connection. That's a perfectly good thing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, mourning the loss of your child. I can't imagine what that would be like. Uh, and when I say it's, it, that's a good thing. What I mean to say is like, that's a totally natural thing. And in fact, if you repress that grief, that is a bad thing. And so none of these with a couple of exception, I mean, I guess there's people who just like give themselves over to hedonism. Uh, and I'd say that's probably not a good thing, but the idea is when it comes right down to it, anything that we allow to become our God, um, which is to say that we prioritize over God and that we tend to, uh, you want, we tend to want to use God to get that thing instead of using that thing to maybe help us better understand God. Um, that's when we turn that thing essentially into an idol or into another God. Um, Romans six verses 16 through 18 say, don't uh, says, uh, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So it's this idea that, you know, the, there's that Bob Dylan song, uh, uh, you're going to have to serve somebody. Uh, and he says, you know, it may be the, the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And we may not realize that we're serving the devil when we prioritize things above God, but that is ultimately what we're doing because we are prioritizing things that will pass away and will probably take us with them. So, you know, I, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about the book uh, of Ecclesiastes lately. And frankly, 
I feel like the book itself is a really good companion piece to uh, to uh, First Reformed um, because both of them are about the looking at the world around you and prioritizing certain things, but then also seeing that maybe prioritizing that is not a great idea, even if it seems like it, even if it's something that everybody tells you is an ultimate good. Uh, and in the end, like trying to find where your faith fits into that, if it does. Um, there's a line from the film where Toller, who now is has uh, really embraced like environmentalism, he says, will God forgive us for what we're doing to his creation? Now, the answer is yes, because God will forgive us for anything if we come to him sincerely. And so to ask this question, you know, it's, it could be a rhetorical question, who knows, um, or it could be somebody who is so despairing of the world around us and, and the, 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 you know, the effects of climate change and all that sort of thing. Uh, so despairing that suddenly this sin, the sin of not caring for our environment is so bad that he wonders, will God forgive us for this? Meanwhile, he probably would very easily say that God will forgive murderers and tyrants and tax collectors and all of the, that God will forgive every sin. But now suddenly because it's this, it's because the, it's the characters, it's his new passion. And suddenly he has a lot of doubts about God because this now is the ultimate sin and possibly the unforgivable sin. So he has put that on such a pedestal that God suddenly looks a little bit smaller and suddenly God can't forgive us for that uh, or refuses to. So essentially he's ascribing his own passions. Uh, he's ascribing, he, he's sort of projecting them on to God. Um, and so with Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes as a book is, I mean, people find it very depressing and I understand why, um, because it goes through and says, hey, all of these things that we all agree are very good, if they are separated from God, if they are divorced from God, then they really are meaningless. That's the word that pops up a lot, uh, is meaningless. Um, Ecclesiastes 7 verses 15 through 18. I'm going to be uh, quoting a lot of uh, Ecclesiastes here. Um, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be overworked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp, grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. And so, I mean, he's basically saying like, hey, you can be wicked or you can be righteous. You're going to die either way. And to cling to one or the other as though that is the point the ultimate point and righteousness is nothing wrong with righteousness. Um, but if you, if you latch on to righteousness without understanding what it really means in, in the context of God, uh, then there's really no point to it. And you will become an extremist. And the only, the best way to avoid all extremes is to fear God because God 
puts everything into perspective and maybe even your definition of, of wickedness, your definition of righteousness will change when you try to see things through God's eyes instead of requiring God to see things through your eyes. Um, you know, uh, an easy example, the Pharisees were tremendously righteous, uh, but we are not particularly sympathetic to them because uh, they are, they've achieved a righteousness that, that they are comfortable with, uh, that nobody else seems able to attain. Um, Ecclesiastes three verses 10 through 14 says, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does so... God does it so that people will fear him. So it does acknowledge that there are good things out there, things that, that would seem to be objective. You know, it's good for people to be happy and it's good for them to do good and it's good for them to find satisfaction in their work. All these are good things, but he's also talking about it very directly as this is from God. But throughout the book, he keeps saying that things are meaningless, provided that you approach them separate from God um, because God uh, God provides perspective you know we all are even the best of us like can be very self-focused not necessarily selfish but very self-focused and suddenly when we are defining things for ourselves uh, you know we one example is, if I judge somebody's intelligence based on how they talk about art, well, that's <laughs> undoubtedly like somebody can speak very eloquently about art and they could be, they could be very intelligent. They're very well spoken, very articulate. Their ideas are very insightful. And to me, it's like, well, obviously that's a very intelligent person. Uh, meanwhile, that person could be a complete moron about a lot of other things. But to me, who very much values film, that person is smart. And that's why we can't really fully rely purely on ourselves to define these, uh, these terms, things like righteousness and goodness and wisdom and all of that. And so uh, I have a little list here of the things that uh, Ecclesiastes calls meaningless. Uh, well, okay, it leads off with everything. It says everything is meaningless. And then it says wisdom is meaningless. Pleasures are meaningless. Wi uh, wisdom and folly are meaningless. Toil is meaningless. Advancement is meaningless. Riches are meaningless. That's just a few. Um, and it's understandable why people would find the idea of this book depressing because these are the things that we champion these are the things that we prioritize and what the the author is saying is yeah i i priority prioritize these as well um and i achieved many of them and yet they in themselves did not bring me satisfaction and i realized that if you remove 
if we if this is a world without God, so if we talk about all this completely uh, divorced, completely separated from God, we might value these things, but what's the point of valuing them over anything else? If there is no concept of objectivity, then why be why is it good to be wise instead of uh, foolish? Um, I remember I I had a an impromptu sort of debate with somebody many years ago, and this person was an atheist, and I was essentially we got <laughs> we got pretty deep, uh, and the argument that I was making is because he because he was an atheist, but he also referred to himself as a secular humanist, and I said, why on earth would you be humanist? Like what is the what is the point of wanting good for people what is the point of wanting good at all i believe i i got to the point where i said why is good good why should why is that something we should strive for and if i decide i don't want to strive for that what can you appeal to if i have gotten to if i've if i've arrived at this conclusion that bad is good then I guess you could always appeal to the law or you could appeal to, you know, the consensus. But if I disagree, it doesn't, then what does your consensus mean? Nothing. Um, so I, sorry, I didn't mean to get on this tirade about like the, the existence of God or, or whatever it is, but that this is what the, the author is talking about when he says that things are meaningless. And so that, Another another way of looking at it is pointless. These things are pointless outside of God. But if you try to uh, if you try to embrace God's definition of wisdom, if you try to embrace God's definition of righteousness, then suddenly you'll avoid extremes. That thing will not become the ultimate thing. You know, uh, you will. You will understand that right that, that with righteousness comes a, a fair amount of grace because you come to realize that you are not perfect and that uh, nobody is perfect except for God and as righteous as you are you can't even begin to compare and so that brings with it humility and all of these things but only if you if you define these things based on God's definition and not ours. So what what does any of this have to do with First Reformed? And I think it's, you know what, if you're asking that, I, I can't say as I blame you. I, I feel like I've gone pretty far afield. All that is to say that he is following his own understanding of things. And we all do it. It's, it's inevitable. He is doing what George Carlin did, who said, I didn't feel this thing they told me to, I would feel, and so I'm questioning this whole thing. I can't blame him for that. I blame everybody else who set him up and said, you'll feel this. Because then what they're doing is they're saying that your feelings are the, are the thing that matter. And that surely we can, we can prove that God exists, not that they're saying it this way, but in his mind they're saying, we can prove by that God exists based on how we feel. Well, what if you don't feel him? Then I guess he doesn't exist. You are putting your you're putting the concept of human emotion and and 
emotion as a means to legitimize something or validate something, you're putting that above the notion of God. God is not, God's existence is not dictated by our, by our feelings um, or his non-existence. And so you have the character from 21 Grams doubting his faith because of some pretty rough stuff. Uh, but I think he was embracing his faith as a means to just get his life in order and then his life wasn't in order. So I guess what's the point of faith? Um, and then you see you have uh, the Reverend from First Reformed jumping on environmentalism because it, it's it's not necessarily that it's appealing, it's that it's exciting, it's new. And faith is not doing for him what he clearly needed it to do. But that's such a, it's such a self-focused, I, again, I won't even necessarily say selfish, but it's such a self-focused viewpoint. And, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging guilt, acknowledging culpability when you've done something wrong. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make the world a better place, but outside of God, or if you're just using God to help you accomplish those goals, then that's all you're doing is you're just using God and God doesn't allow himself to be used. God is God. God is in charge whether we want him to be or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, he is. And to act as though he isn't, to act as though he is just a tool for us to accomplish what we want to accomplish is to delude ourselves. And eventually, we, if we're not pursuing God, then we're pursuing something else, and everything else leads to hell. Um, to go back to the great divorce, there's... Uh, a character who says that that in the end there are only two people there there are only two people the people who look at God and say thy will be done and the people at whom God looks and says thy will be done which is to say you either surrender yourself to God and that includes your emotions and your goals as as great as they might be um and just say this is what i want but you know what in the end it's it's you um and if you give me nothing of what i want yeah i'll be sad but i'll have you i will have the the love and acceptance of the creator of the universe who knows more than i could ever know or anybody could ever know and knows the past, present, and future of me and everybody else and has chosen to love and accept and know and know me. That's no, that's no small thing. Uh, but we sometimes think it's a small thing, especially if you've been in faith a while, like I have been. Um, it's very easy to think that, oh, this job or this you know, this girl or whatever is important though it is when, when looking at the, the size of God, suddenly it's a little bit less important. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, there, we talked about the various things that are meaningless and I wanted to throw a few out myself. Environmentalism is meaningless. 
marriage is meaningless. Parenthood is meaningless. Social justice is meaningless. Patriotism is meaningless. Art is meaningless. These are all things that are good. But what's the point of them if we are not if we're not using them to get closer to God and understand uh, understand God better? Then what's even the point of them? They might make us a little bit happy. They might make the world a little bit of a better place. But unless we understand what God's definition of of a better place is, then we're all just kind of stumbling around in the dark. And and that's that's the depressing thing. It's it's not somebody declaring these things to be meaningless. It's ascribing ultimate meaning to these things and not realizing that that's what we've done. And just again treating God like a tool to accomplish these things. Um and it also probably explains why when you or when I experience, you know, when we have prioritized the wrong thing and then we get that thing, it's satisfying, but not for very long. And so Augustine said, uh, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Um once uh, going back to C.S. Lewis, he said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, that's pretty, that's maybe a little bit simplistic for some people, but, uh, but I do, I do agree with it. Like there, there is a reason, like you talk to anybody who talks about how much they, how much money they made, how many awards they won, whatever it is. Certainly, people talk about like, Hey, family is everything. And I do think that with family, you do get the idea of love, genuine, like relational love, which I do think maybe reflects God a little bit more, but it's still absolutely possible to over prioritize your family to such an extent that you turn into Michael Corleone in uh, the Godfather and family becomes everything at the exclusion of all else. And you actually become a tremendously inhuman person. So it's possible to over prioritize even something like family. And so, uh, and then you wind up alone again, just like you would if you prioritized all these other things. So, I would say that if you find yourself dissatisfied with the various things that you are um, pursuing, follow that dissatisfaction. Like, pay pay attention to it. Why isn't this thing satisfying you? Even if you've gotten exactly what you want, you know. I mean, Jen and I, we weren't able to to have biological kids. Um, we had always wanted to adopt. Uh, that was part of the plan, but it wasn't going to be the whole plan. And, you know, it, it, it hit us for a long time, like not being able to do that and feeling frustrated. And it really like screwed up our marriage for a while. And, and that was tough. And now we have these two beautiful, wonderful little boys and I love them with all my heart. And I, I can totally understand how it's possible to find my identity in them to prioritize them over everything else because they are so wonderful and I love them so much. But 
if I if I put everything into them, for, per, first off, it puts a lot of pressure on them, but also what happens on the day when they rebel? Uh, what happens when they start becoming, when they start talking back, you know, as people say, then I could be, I could be thrown into a tailspin. And that's one of the good things about trying to find your identity in God, which by the way, I don't do, but that's one of the good things about it is as the Bible says, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, my kids could, my kids could change or, you know, uh, God forbid something terrible happens to to them and they're just gone. And then if I'm finding my identity purely in them, then who am I? And I think at that point, if I'm finding my identity purely in them, I am Ethan Hawke, uh, Ethan Hawke's character in First Reformed, who lost his son, which again, I cannot imagine how horrible that would be. Um, and he's just adrift and he's just searching and faith is not enough for him, probably because he turned to it as a means to deal with his his grief, not realizing that if you if you embrace it not as the means but as the end you will get so much more than what than the the relatively small thing that you want you know it's the idea of of filling a void um you know we we feel some sense of emptiness in life and then we sometimes turn to faith not by virtue of itself, but just to fill that void. And then it actually starts to overflow. It more than fills that void. And rather than embrace that, we say, well, hang on a minute. I I just needed enough to do this. But now that it's overflowing, like now I have a thing I need to deal with. And I wasn't looking for a thing to deal with. I just needed to, to fill this void. And that's, and that's what God is, is he, he doesn't, he's not going to fit into the various voids. He will overflow and take over everything if we let him. And that is a good thing. It's overwhelming, certainly, but that's a good thing. Um, this was very rambling. And clearly this is stuff that, that resonates with me because, man, I, I often feel like God is the very last priority in my life. Um, I'm so focused on... I'm focused on my past, present, and future, the things I've done in the past and the things that have been done to me in the past, the mistakes I'm making right now, and the things that I want to happen in the future. I get so focused on all of them and every and a lot of things within each, uh, within each uh, era that I often neglect to see where God has worked in the past, where he's working now, and consequently i then do not trust him for the future everything is completely self-focused to go back to that term and so as i say this you know again please don't think that i'm pointing the finger at you this is very much me and it's probably this is probably a bit self-indulgent um and this is all easier said than done as i mentioned god is intangible our troubles are way too tangible so it is a process and that process starts with a decision to prioritize God. And that would mean, you know, praying more often, talking with people about God more often, you know, going to church or reading the Bible, all of these things 
so that you can start to understand more of who he is so that you can then understand where everything else, all these other very important parts of your life, where they fit. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a long process and I don't think we ever fully arrive there, but that's okay. We don't have to cause Jesus already did. And so we can just strive and fail and keep going. And that's the best we can do, but at least we're on the right path. So, uh, okay. I will go ahead and leave it there. Um, as always, I don't know when the next episode will be. I think it will, I think it will be about Bong Joon-ho's parasite, but I'm not sure yet. That's definitely been in the back of my mind. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know that they don't come out very often. And so when one does come out, I, uh, you know, I, I hope it's not too, it wasn't too eye rolling for you. But uh, anyway, if you have any questions or, or comments, you're welcome to email me, Tyler at morethanonelesson.com. You can always leave comments in the comment section of this episode. You can uh, like us on Facebook and you can follow us on Twitter. So thank you everybody for listening and we'll get you next time. Bye. <laughs>